the Irish Times Inside Business podcast in association with Davy. It's amazing what you discover when you really listen. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week we're looking at the state of the residential housing market and figures from the Irish Home Builders Association suggesting that 8,000 fewer new homes will be built this year because of the current lockdown of the economy. Later in the show, Suzanne Maloney, winner of the Irish Times Innovation Awards, tells me about her solution for a skin disease that plagues many people. But we'll start with the housing market and I'm joined now on the line by James Benson, Director of the Irish Home Builders Association and by Owen Burke Kennedy of the Irish Times. James, uh, welcome to Inside Business. You did a survey of your members and uh, the numbers that have been spat out from that survey, if you like, are that because of the construction lockdown at present, um, there are going to be 8,000 fewer new homes built this year, which is obviously a blow to anybody who's hoping to get onto the property ladder for the first time. Just explain to us um, how you arrived at that number. Thanks for the invitation, Kieran. Well, I suppose what, what we did, we went out to our members and we, our, our own members in the Irish Home Builders Association would account for 85 to 90% of delivery in any given year up and down the country uh, of projects of different scale. Um, what we found through the survey was that on the active sites that are currently uh, were running um, at the start of January, there was over 17,500 live units within those projects. Um, when you take out a number of social projects and at the time private units that were permitted to complete works during the initial restrictions, um, we found that over 16,500 units were actually on hold um, and couldn't continue on works for a period of time. Um, and when you look and you break that down, our estimate is that by March the 5th, if we don't see a reopening in advance of that time, we're going to be in a situation where we have lost 8,000 units. Um, and that's 8,000 families that will potentially find themselves in difficulty for the rest of this year. So just to be clear, there's 16,500 um, sites, uh, housing units, if you like, that are currently paused because of the lockdown restrictions. And you're saying that if if things aren't back up and running from March 5th onwards, 8,000 of those will be lost. Yes, because I suppose, Kieran, when you, when you break it down, while we have 16,500 live projects that are live units and live homes that are stalled, these wouldn't account for the number of units that haven't even commenced um, for the rest of the year. So you'll always only have a certain number of live at any given time because it needs to comply with your funding and whatever requirements you'd have and, and different arrangements you'd have through the, through the lifetime of that particular development. Um, so one of the fears is, as well that would come out of this would be that in previous lockdown, we saw a, a significant drop in commencements when we did see return to normal operations, um, albeit that it was the new normal with new measures and protocols put in place. Um, so we did see a significant drop. It was 40% drop in what would be our normal commencements in any given year. So the 8,000 units that are currently lost or will be lost by the March timeframe, that is purely within January to March. That doesn't even account for the drop that we could see for the rest of the year. Um, investment and funding will get more difficult as we see years go on, as, as the year will go on as a result of stop-start economy. So we're going to be under pressure to even minimise it to 8,000 units. We could see a further um, escalation of those units that won't be delivered in any given year. Um, so we will have to see what the reaction of the market will be. Um, we know from the last time, as I said, it was a significant drop up to 40% in commencements. That will impact not just in 2021, that will impact in 2022 and beyond as well because, you know, it isn't just a year that we need to take into account. It's what's going to happen over the next number of years. Presumably, James, the association accepts the government's reason for locking down the economy. We had a huge spike in infection rates and it's put serious pressure uh, on the health service, obviously. So 
I'm taking it for granted that your members uh, would, would agree with the fact that they're in lockdown at the minute. We fully appreciate the seriousness of the situation and, and the strain that's currently on the health system. Um, we are very disappointed, though, that we can't continue the vital work that we do, you know, on any given day. You know, we are still within a housing crisis. Um, people need to be homed. Um, they're in, sometimes they're in very um, difficult situations that currently is they want to get homes. You know, unfortunately, the real losers in this situation is the average income earners who, again, will be locked out of the market, both for affordability issues um, and greater increase in cost of construction, now, which will make it even more difficult when the restrictions do ease. Um, so it's going to be even more difficult for them to get onto the property ladder. And unfortunately, they're the biggest losers in this and they're the ones that our focus is constantly on, the consumer and how we can get delivered to the numbers that they require. Um, we are disappointed because, as we said, we've put a huge amount of effort into, uh, we've always had a very good health and safety culture. That has been magnified over the last 12 months. We've put in a standard operating procedure and practices on site that have been adopted internationally, even when those other countries have continued on with their own construction activities within within their own restrictions. Um, the government decision and true effort here wasn't to continue on with those restrictions. Uh, we felt that we've had a very compelling case as to why we could continue on. The facts and figures um, are very accurate. They don't lie. We've had uh, a very minimal number of cases on site. So the measures and protocols were working and they do continue to work. Um, I, I visited a number of sites up and down the country during the time when we came back after the initial lockdown. Um, I felt we had a very, um, a, a very strong and secure protocols in place. I wouldn't have put myself into that position of visiting sites if I didn't feel that we were, we were up there to the highest standards. Um, and I think the case numbers reflected that. Um, what we do need to be very conscious of is where we are now. So if we're looking at, and what we've been told was um, the 5th of March is the resumption of figures, what is that reopening going to be? Well, what is the roadmap? My question for government would be, what is the roadmap for reopening? Because we can't be told on the 5th of March that we can reopen. We need advance notice of that, that we are going to be able to reopen on that date because we need to ensure supply chains, uh, finances, labour. Labour has been a massive issue. Sure, but I, I presume your association has been in contact, is in constant dialogue with the government about this. So presumably you're pressing your case with the government and they'll give you the nod one way or the other in advance of March 5th? Well, I think with anything here, it's all about certainty. Um, and, and, and construction, and particularly residential, is all built around certainty. We will need to know at the appropriate time that we can get back. Because if we look at a situation where we are to go back on site on March the 5th, uh, our own members will need to reconnect with their supply chains to go, well, one, will their suppliers have got their own supplies at that time? You know, we've, we've come on the back of Brexit, so supplies were always going to be in short they can only house a certain number of materials at any given time because of their own financial constraints. So we need to make sure the supply chain is up and running for that resumption whenever it may be. Likewise, labour is going to be a massive, massive issue. We had labour shortages over the last 12 to 24 months as it was. Unfortunately now, many of our own members have had to put people on temporary layoff and even worse, they've had to put them on permanent layoff. Um, those that are on temporary layoff will have to find alternative arrangements during this time. Um, so they may never even return to their original employment. So we'll make it all the more difficult when we do reopen to try and get back up to the, the level of efficiency and level of speed that we need to see to try and hit the demand in any given year. Um, and as things were, we weren't even hitting that demand. So it's going to be a very challenging process. Okay. Umber Kennedy, if 8,000 fewer homes are built this year, what's that going to mean for the Irish property market? Well, that's... A really difficult question to answer because we've been lagging uh, what we think is uh, demand in the market for a decade and um, price inflation has actually come down instead of going up. So the, the basic laws of supply and demand are, are difficult and tricky at the best of times in a lot of markets, but in housing they're pr 
particularly difficult to um, follow and track. So the ERSI did a report uh, recently based, uh, commissioned by the Department of Housing and they reckoned that uh, over the longer term uh, supply would need to be about 28,000 units a year. Now it seems like we're going to come in around 19,000 uh, for last year. We haven't got the official figure. That's actually better than expected and better than a lot of the warnings we were getting last April and May. Still, though, it's, you know, 9,000 units off what the official uh, estimate of demand is. So we're in that sort of lagging zone. But the, the unfortunate thing to kind of say to people is, um, you know, wh- when we did build a huge amount of houses, we didn't get a reduction or, a, or a, a, an improvement in affordability. And I'll remind people back in, there's an awful uh, stat to bring up, but back in 2006, we built 92,000 homes and property prices rose 14% that year. Now, you can say that's in the middle of a credit fueled boom, uh, one that we don't have now. But it's just not um, the magic bullet that everyone thinks it's going to be that if we get supply up, then suddenly our housing crisis will be solved or resolved or over. It just doesn't seem that it's going to work that way. And how many units are we likely to build this year? So uh, the central bank have estimates. They reckon we probably did around 18.5 to 19 last year. And they reckon we will build 21.5 to 22.5 over the next two or three years each year. So um, that's still about 23,000 units over the next three years lower than they, want to, than they would have forecast pre-COVID. And presumably it doesn't take in the fact that James's members think that 8,000 fewer homes are going to be built this year. It doesn't take into that, no. That's, that's their uh, prediction. So that, that's a pretty stark prediction and would really uh, you know, set the cat amongst the pigeons in terms of supply. So uh, just in terms of James' prediction, we, we, we did have those type of predictions last uh, April and May, and we were surprised with the level of the bounce back in construction in the third quarter. Now, will we see that again? That's questionable. And James makes a good point. It's difficult for investors to move into a, a market that's in a, such a stop-start pattern. And it's more in a stop-start pattern now than it was maybe back in the first lockdown when we thought we were just getting one lockdown. And then there's issues with finance, and as James says, issues with employment. All of these things uh, you know, may be worse this time around. Yeah, what about that point, James, that um, the number of units that actually were built last year was much higher than had been taught when uh, you know, the first lockdown came in in March and the whole economy uh, was locked down for, for a few months. Um, are you scaremongering uh, at the minute, warning that you know, 8,000 fewer homes could be built uh, in the hope that the government will, uh, will bend and allow you to reopen from March 5th? Uh, because last year, actually, the, you know, the number of units that were built, it, it was much higher than was thought. No, and it's a great point, but Kieran, I suppose the original estimates last year were that we would come in around 14,000 units and we've thankfully we got that up to about just under 19,000 units. As I said, the final figure isn't quite known at this time. I think that shows the resilience and uh, the expertise within the industry to bring us back up to where we were and thankfully we didn't have the completely negative year that we thought we would have. I think that came on the uh, introduction of several positive initiatives within the government during that period as well because we did see the extension of the help to buy. We did see the indication that the publication of the affordable bill was coming down the line and thankfully this year we'll see the introduction of the shared equity scheme which will, as I said from earlier on, those average income earners who are currently locked out of the market, it will get them an option to get onto that 
property ladder. So all those positive signals that were sent to the market meant that market, I suppose, they were more resilient than what we thought. We saw a lot of increase in deposits held within households during that time where they didn't spend and actually was able to create, uh, I suppose, a sustainable demand there. The fear is this time, the current, even as we currently stand, we're going to face a longer lockdown than we did in that initial period. Um, if we look at what it takes to build a house in any given year, you're going to need investment um, for rental sector. You're going to need funding for developers and builders, and you're going to need funding for consumers. The financial institutes will be looking at this very closely. And if they see a danger there, they won't lend out the mortgages necessary for people in any given year. And if the number of mortgages that aren't being provided there, um, and we've seen the number of drawdowns have dropped, if we see that mortgage lends drop, Equally, the finance given to developers and builders in any given year won't be there, so they won't even be able to commence on projects. Now, the difficulty that remains as well and why I would be so fearful of the numbers dropping this year, as I said, we have a longer period as it currently stands. We have a lot of weaknesses within our current system that need to be addressed. Now, they were going to be, they were in the process of seeing improvements and greater efficiency, but they haven't been resolved. Planning is a massive issue currently within our system infrastructure and the deficits that we've seen there because of lack of investment over the last decade, they continue to be a problem. And we're seeing continual increases in in, in delivery costs. As Owen said earlier on there, demand increased supply isn't going to drive down prices. And one of the reasons for that is because we need to look at the layers that go into increasing costs of delivery. Like there's a high a high percentage up to half in any given home goes through VAT, taxes, levies and contributions that are needed um, for that home sale. But if we see a continual increase in cost of delivery uh, and we do so, the planning system and its slowness and the uncertainty that's present in that adds to increased work, time frame, documents. That's all time and it's all money. Um, equally with our infrastructure, we've seen a huge increase in the cost of, of provision of homes as a result of needing to upgrade water and wastewater services throughout the country. And that's probably one of the biggest contributors to cost. And at the moment, we haven't seen the positive science that would say that that will dissipate in the next number of years. So we're going to continue to see house prices increase regardless of supply. Yeah, but James, a couple of factors. I mean, one, the government introduced fast-track uh, planning legislation, uh, which has been in place for a little while now. Um, and that has certainly helped uh, move, move along the, the planning process, no doubt about that. In fact, there have been a number of interventions by the government Maybe some of them weren't wise, but there have been um, to reduce the burden, if you like, for your members in terms of uh, construction. And secondly, um, th there never seems to be any conversation or any debate around the uh, prices that are paid for land by your members, which are entirely within your control. And some stupid sums of money have been paid for land in the past. Isn't that right? I mean, isn't that part of the reason why house prices are going up? Well, I'm delighted you mentioned both of them actually because they're, they're integral to this whole uh, conversation and around affordability and viability of homes. When you talk at the Strategic Housing Development, the SHD process, this was, I suppose, uh, probably ill-named ill the fast-track system. What we see there is we've seen a huge increase in the number of apartment units that have been granted permission, particularly around the Greater Dublin area and, and Dublin itself in the last number of years. Equally, when you look at that, we don't see the same correlation with the number of commencements, and that's because the viability isn't there. The reason we're seeing a high number of applications that contain apartment units is our current policy means that we have to have a minimum density of 35 units plus to the hectare. That, in layman's terms, means that we can't build houses when we can't build duplexes. We're pushed towards apartment bills in those particular areas. Um, that's a result of the current policy and the planning guidelines that are in place. These need to be looked at because all the more 
currently we would see that the demand isn't there for apartments. Um, we need to see flexibility around those requirements, that it's not a blanket requirement whether we're in Dublin or Kerry or, or Galway. It's a case of we need to look at what's in that particular location, what are the needs and demands in those particular locations. So James, am I understanding you correctly in that you're saying there's been a huge surge in the number of applications being made for apartments, but very few commencements? Because it's a, it's a result of viability. So your members, your members are applying to build uh, apartment units that they know they can't build, that they know they can't uh, start on, that they have no intention of building. Well, I suppose the problem is, and this is where the uncertainty comes into the system and something that we would want, we've advocated that it should be brought into the conversation far earlier, um, that when you go through the planning process at the moment, you don't know what the cost of development will be at that inception stage. You actually have to go through planning. You have to go to look at the conditions imposed on you. Um, and then you will find out what the true cost of development is. At the moment, as I said earlier on, even our water and wastewater infrastructure is significantly lacking throughout the country. When I go through planning, I still won't know what the cost of upgrades are required in a particular area or if they're actually needed. Um, and that can add on significantly to the cost of any delivery of any given home. So we don't actually know until we go through the planning process and all the add-ons are imposed on what the conditions may be for that development. And it's only at that point that we will know the true cost of the development for the stage. So it's, our system needs to be brought into line. You know, we need to introduce economic assessment and have a conversation at early, at pre-planning stage, I would argue, that we have a conversation to go, what will the implication of the current policy be? What will the density requirements mean? What cost will that add on to the development? If that can be done at the outset, at a very early stage in planning, it will mean a more effective use of resources both on the applicant and on the local authorities and on board Panola where we don't go through a process. James, it hardly seems credible now that um, the builders who are members of your association, many of them with vast experience uh, in the property development industry in Ireland, for good and for bad, they've been through good times, great times, and they've been in the doldrums as well that they don't know within a fairly accurate uh, margin what the development cost of building a set of apartments is going to be on a particular site. I mean, it hardly seems credible. And, and if it's the case um, that, you know, water or other infrastructure has to be supplied to a site, well, then that's, that's speculation, isn't it? That's what they call speculation. Your guys have taken a punt on a site that isn't properly serviced uh, and then they cry wolf when um, the costs of building on that site rocket. I don't think it's speculation because we, we can't, we're looking at a situation where we've 20,000 units delivered annually over the last number of years. So that's, that's hardly speculative building. Like, you know, we could say that if we had 90,000 units, as, as Owen referred to back in the early noughties, where we saw large numbers of speculative built, we don't have that situation at the moment. We can only build what the policy and the guidelines permit us to build. At the moment, the guidelines and the policies push you down towards a high density, uh, which means that you need to build apartments. We've seen any number of reports from independent consultants, professional bodies who all agree that apartment viability just isn't there. It's not a choice you know, for builders to say, well, well, we'll build apartments because there's a more lucrative uh, gain at the end. You know, the reality is ho home builders want to build homes. If they could do that at a more efficient way, they would be doing it. And we would see a greater number of units delivered in any given year. But I just think it's absurd that your members are applying to build apartments. They're actually putting applications in to the local authorities to build apartments that they know they're not going to be able to build for financial reasons or that they don't have to finance um, to build, presumably, because of uh, financial reasons. I mean, where, where's the sense in that? And if they're building on a site that you say needs to be supplied by water or other important uh, utilities or infrastructure, well, then that site uh, presumably is a greenfield site and it's presumably located somewhere where, you know, it is going to be a challenge to bring water or other services uh, to it. 
And therefore, they've taken a punt on that site, that that site will be ripe for development at some stage and they'll be allowed to develop on it. And that's speculation. Well, look, with any development, there comes an element of risk, but I, I totally agree with you. Our members would be far more, what you call it, better placed if they knew with certainty what was available to it. We don't know what infrastructure is available in any given time. That's a, that's a deficiency, I would argue, within the system that at the moment we're in a situation where we don't know what our wastewater and services is. We don't know if that land is developed or not. It's not a case anymore that just because land is zoned, that actually land can be brought forward for development. And that is a weakness of the system. Our own members would be would welcome with open arms any certainty that could be provided with that of what is coming down the line. Um, and we, look, we'd, we, we'd, we'd love to see that, that we'd see greater certainty around all those elements from infrastructure, from the, the planning process, um, secure timelines, everything that goes with it. Umber Kennedy, you've been writing about apartment uh, developments in, in Dublin in, in particular of late. Um, and a lot of them are being snapped up by investment funds, aren't they? Because that's that's where the real money is. Yeah, I mean... We've been talking about building higher density uh, housing in urban areas for years and it finally seems now, um, even referring to James's point, that uh, planning applications suggest there's more planning for apartments than there is for houses and that started in 2019 and the trend seems to be continuing. Um, a report I did, uh, reported on recently by the Society of um, Chartered Surveyors uh, priced the cost of development of these apartments and they're quite uh, astronomical Um for a high spec two bedroom apartment in the urban areas of Dublin, they were putting up figures of six hundred nineteen thousand. That's just a viability cost. That's not a sales price. The sales price could be ten or fifteen percent higher. So to put that in perspective, a first time buyer might need a might need might need a deposit of seventy thousand and an income of one hundred and sixty or one hundred and seventy thousand a year to afford a simple two bed apartment in the capital city. I mean, it's it's truly astonishing. So we have the industry crying blue murder over viability and we have the population crying blue murder over affordability. And in the middle of all this, we have the government who are putting together two uh, programmes or two measures to try and enhance affordability. One, they have to help to buy scheme and now they're putting together a shared equity scheme. Both of those are demand side measures and it's not obvious over the longer term if they'll do anything for price. If anything, they'll push the price forward. So they may help a certain cohort of people to buy but they're basically going to uh, enhance the price. So they're supporting the current market and the current market is pricing most people out. So it doesn't seem like we have a solution coming down the tracks at us uh, anytime soon. All right, well, on that cheery note, um, we shall leave it there. Let's see how this uh, develops. Uh, Umber Kennedy and James Benson, thank you for joining us. At Davy, the best conversations are always more than one way. We know it's even more important to listen than it is to talk. It's how we get to know our clients personally, by listening to you carefully and understanding what's important to your life, your family and your future. Then we can talk about a financial life plan that will suit you best. Davy, it's not just business, it's personal. Janie Davy, trading as Davy, is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. We take our responsibilities personally. Now, the 11th Irish Times Innovation Awards were held virtually last week with Galway-based Suzanne Maloney scooping the overall prize for her company, Hydromed Solutions. The company has developed a novel dressing system aimed at those suffering from the incurable skin disease called Hydradenitis superlativa. And I'm delighted to be joined now by Suzanne. Suzanne, I hope I pronounced that correctly. Uh, we'll call it HS, I think, from here on in. 
But I know you were a, a sufferer from this disease yourself. So maybe just tell us a, a little bit about uh, what it is you do and, and how it came about. Yeah, absolutely. No problem. So HS is a disease of the skin uh, that causes lesions and wounds to form in areas like the armpits and the groin. Um, it can happen anywhere on the body, but they're very commonly affected areas. And um, I started developing symptoms of it when I was a young teenager and uh, had to kind of manage these lesions for most of my life. And um, they require wound care. They're very, uh, they drain a lot. They're very oozy kind of lesions and they don't really heal. So you have to manage a lot of exudate. And um, it's just something that was very difficult for me um, as a I suppose when I was in school and then in college and then in my work life, I was using my arms a lot. I used to be a chef and a baker. So keeping a dressing in in my armpit was a real challenge. And it just became very um, more and more frustrating as the years went on. And uh, I had this idea for a product that would help myself actually to, to begin with. It was something for me to make my life a bit easier. But then when I started speaking to other people with HS, I realized that this was quite a big problem and no one was really doing anything about it. Um, HS was like it has had an impact on my life, but it's never really stopped me doing what I want to do. But there are people living with this disease who are completely debilitated, who have developed, you know, um, anxiety and depression because they're draining all the time. And there's lots of research around the impact of a chronic wound but not necessarily specific to HS. And when we look at people with chronic wounds, they are typically over age 65. But people with HS are in their prime of life. They're, you know, they're in their early 20s and they just want to live a normal life, myself included. Um, so when I saw the extent of the problem, I, I decided to see if I could really develop this a bit more and um, make it a reality for myself and for other people with the disease. So just tell us a little bit about um, those early days when you were trying to come up with a, a solution for this. How did it come about? Where did the idea uh, sort of form in your head? So there was an incident at a party when um, my dressing, I was, I was meeting someone and my dressing fell out of my armpit when I was shaking their hand onto the floor. And that was kind of the turning point. I had had enough at this stage. And the next day, um, it was actually quite late at night. I emailed a product designer and just to see if there was anything that I could do or, or to even just set the wheels in motion, I suppose. And it got, I suppose it was quite a long process, that part, but but I made a lot of mistakes very early on. And it was only really when I came into um, Enterprise Ireland and got an innovation voucher with them, was able to develop a prototype. Um, then I had lots of support from Leo, the local enterprise office, um, Enterprise Ireland again. Um, and then I was accepted um, onto a program called BioXL at the university, which was a crash course, a six month kind of crash course in medical device development. And that's where um, everything really changed because the product was evaluated every month by um, experts in industry. Um, I was given this incredible training and learned so much about like IP, about commercializing medical devices, about regulations, about design. So this, this at the end of the six months, I had prototypes, a variety of prototypes, I, the good kind of foundations for a pretty solid business plan. And I'd met a lot of connections that I knew I wanted to work with going forward. So that was the biggest turning point for me. And um, I suppose here we are today. 
that was nearly three years ago. Yeah, sure. So tell us what it does. Tell us how your product uh, solves this uh, wound dressing problem. Of course. So um, typical dressings, traditional dressings are really made for flat areas of the body. They're typically an island, like a, a square or a rectangle of an absorbent material that's surrounded by a skirt of adhesive. There's a few issues with that. The shape, first of all, doesn't really conform to the the shape of the armpit. Um, Also, when you're applying and removing adhesive very regularly, like you would be with HS, you damage the surrounding skin. Um, Also, it's a very mobile and moist area of the body. So adhesive can be affected by that and it starts to peel away. And often you would experience leaks. um, Your dressings move, fall off. So our product is a garment-based solution that incorporates a, a... perforated panel over the affected area wherein a dressing is placed inside the perforated panel and it's secured outside the perforated panel with a little external fastening tab. So in essence, the garment facilitates the the placement and retention of a dressing in the armpit. And you say a garment. So this is something you put onto your shoulder area, let's say, and then you can put a a dress or a t-shirt or whatever top on on top of that. Exactly. Yeah, it's like a crop top um, or some people would compare it to a sports bra, although it's not really. It, it actually closes under the bust. And um, we have just released a T-shirt version of the product as well with the same technology. So it's it's very comfortable. It's made of a super soft material called micromodal. It's very absorbent and breathable. It's so comfortable to wear. Um, it's very adjustable so you can make sure you have the right fit and um, the feedback's been great so far. So we're we're really pleased with how it's going. Okay, is this a condition that women suffer? Uh, is it just women or is it uh, both genders? Both genders suffer, but it is more prevalent in women. And there's there's a few factors that are believed to cause this. Um, it might be hormones. And also maybe the fact that just a lot of women would present earlier with uh, symptoms. So there are a lot of men affected affected. And they're very severely affected. So I would take the opportunity to just say to your listeners, if you do have any symptoms of um, they they can appear like boils or abscesses in the armpits, the groin or the buttocks or anywhere on the skin, on the thighs, um, behind the ears, neck or chest. Maybe just to go to your doctor and ask them, do they think it's HS? Because there is treatment there. And if it's recurring in particular, that's a very kind of um, telltale sign of HS that it recurs, it heals it forms a scar, it heals very slowly, forms a scar and then will recur. Um, it's very typical of HS. And how many sufferers would we have in Ireland? It depends on the, the research that you read, but the prevalence rate is thought to be in around 1% of the population. Okay, so significant enough. Yeah. And, and for yourself, has it, I suppose it can't cure it, but has it solved the problem for you? Yeah, absolutely. It's been a lifesaver, uh, genuinely. And um it's it's you know what it's just knowing that um i'm not going to leak onto my clothes it's definitely not a cure and we never try to position this as a cure-all the anecdotal feedback from people using the product has been that it's reduced their odor it's um it's um what else that they find their wounds are healing faster we are we don't claim that though because we haven't studied that but what we have studied and proven in our clinical trial is that it reduces dressing related pain um that it's quicker and easier to use that it is uh, more comfortable for patients 
that it improves patients' sense of their body image and body confidence and that it has a dramatic impact on a patient's quality of life in a positive way. So that is, um, that's great. We're delighted to to kind of have that um, officially and we're writing that up now to present in a paper um, soon. Great. Now, you mentioned earlier you were a chef. So this is a, this is a real career change. I presume you've left chefing behind. What kind of chef were you? Uh, were you? What was your... What was your signature dish? Yeah, so I was, well, I was a general chef to, to begin with. I trained in culinary arts and catering for health, actually. And that was always something I was interested in, kind of nutrition and um, illnesses. So that it's it's funny that I'm kind of working back in, in health. But I worked in restaurants, um, tradi- typically kind of just doing doing all sections of the kitchen. But I did focus on pastry for the last few years of my restaurant career career. And then I actually opened my own bakery. So I ran my own bakery from 2012 until 2018. And it was only after I did the program in Galway that I, I hung up my apron officially and, and handed the bakery over to someone else. So it's been quite a journey. And do you still own the bakery? No, no, no. It's, it's, it's changed hands. It's changed hands. And uh, the lady who's, who's running it now has done a phenomenal job. So I'm really happy to see I keep, I keep um, an eye on her and, um, you know, online, on social media, and she's, she's thriving. Good. Well, it sounds like there was an entrepreneurial gene inside you just waiting, waiting to burst out. Yeah, I think there, I, I think even as a child, I was quite entrepreneurial. <laughs> so I think it's definitely in the blood. And I, I come from a family where we had a, a, a family business uh, growing up. So I would have always been in behind the counter and, you know, cleaning the shop and doing things like that. So um, it's definitely in, in the genes. Yeah. Tell us about the family business. It was a pharmacy um, in Ballyfermot. So um, it was my my mother and father actually worked there and um, it's also since changed hands. But uh, I grew up basically um, going down to the pharmacy, uh, you know, after school and on the weekends. And when I was a teenager, I worked there uh, just behind the counter as well. So, yeah, it's always it's always been nice to be kind of part of a family business. Yeah, there's a health link, I think, uh, running through through your career uh, somewhere along the way there. Yeah. Um, so just tell us a little bit about Hydromed. Um, you've mentioned the journey you've been on so far. Where Where's the company at now? So we're currently selling direct to the end user, which is the patient. And um, we went that way because a lot of patients already buy out of pocket. Um, so we wanted to be available to them while we work on our reimbursement cases. So we are seeking reimbursement at the moment in Ireland, um, the UK, um, the Netherlands, and that's through health services. So through, say, for example, the HSE or the NHS and the the Dutch um, health service. And then in the US, we are a reimbursable product. So we're we have kind of a lot of groundwork done to access that market. We just need to kind of start implementing the plans that we've laid and fine tune a few things before we we fully commit to anything. So we're we're going to be available through insurance and health services throughout this year and, and next year as well. And in terms of funding, how are you set up? We're doing okay. We we closed a, a seed round back in 2019 and we've been careful with our money. And in particular last year, it was, um, I suppose we had to change a lot of our plans. But uh, we so we've been, we've been careful. And I suppose as a startup, you always would be pinching the pennies wherever you can. 
Um, but we are going for a Series A uh, this year. We do want to expand. We have great plans. We just need to, I suppose, um, bolster up and and make it really happen. And how much would you hope to raise? So we're looking to raise uh, two million euro. Oh, okay. All right. And in terms of the pandemic, how has that impacted on the business model? There was a few different ways that impacted us. I would say the biggest one was in document processing outside of our company and kind of delays in timelines, just a bit of timeline slippage because someone took longer to get back to us and we'd miss a window because of that. And, you know, a lot of that kind of thing. But it's all it's all resolved or being resolved. It was just kind of unfortunate. I definitely think there was also a bit of um, an impact to our sales. We had just actually started selling into the US at the end of February last year. And our product enables people to go out and live their lives um, and manage their wounds. And I suppose there were people looking at it going, that's a great idea, but I'm sitting at home and it's it's not that critical for me at the moment. So we did see a little decline in our sales, but we're back on track now and we're hitting our targets. So it's it, it was it was worrying, you know, we and also I suppose I'd a, I had um, a trip planned to the States for six weeks in April where I should have been on a roadshow meeting patient groups and meeting different um, physicians and, and health services. And that was all cancelled. So like even our ability to market the product was affected. Um, but we've we've adapted quite well and uh, we've we've got a, quite a very strong uh, online strategy now. So we're happy. We're happy with our progress. And what about the competition, Suzanne? I know you say that the wound dressings that were available previously, you know, weren't great, weren't, weren't really up to scratch. But presumably there is competition out there. It's a tough market. The US must be a particularly tough market to, to break into because, you know, it's 50 different states. It's, uh, it's different from one coast to the other, isn't it? So, so how do you meet that challenge? Um, it's, we're, we're still kind of direct to consumer in the States. So we have quite a big network of patients online and there is a lot of peer-to-peer recommendations happening. So that is that is one of our, I, I, a huge benefit of being part of the patient community myself has really enabled me to kind of talk very openly about what I'm doing in the patient community and they support us. So in terms of our, I suppose, our direct consumer access, it hasn't been it ha- well, it has been challenging, but it it's definitely a bonus that I'm part of the community and that I know a lot of people in the community and that we can spread word of mouth. There definitely was a little bit of hesitancy in the outset because we had no social proof. We didn't have reviews of the product. We didn't have people saying, you know, like, oh, has anyone tried this? Oh, yeah, I tried it. It's great. But that's starting to happen now. And it's it's definitely um, it's definitely getting there. We have, in terms of the reimbursement, we're working with some really, um, really experienced um, consultants and people involved in the company already. So we are getting expert advice on that. And and that's why it's it's just taking a little bit longer than we would love because we're just, we really want to make sure we're making the right decisions uh, before we commit to anything fully. Sure. Suzanne, look at five years. Um, what do you see as being the future for HydroMed Solutions? How big do you think it'll be? Are there other sort of related products maybe that you'd like to bring to market or that you have in mind, uh, skincare uh, products? Absolutely. I think in five years, we will have developed a, a full range of products for, for HS specifically. And then we will be looking at 
other types of wounds, um, post-surgical wounds and burns. And um, the technology can be applied into lots of areas of wound care. It's not unique to HS. We just happen to be a HS focused company. So there's plenty of opportunity to expand the range beyond HS once we're finished with our, you know, with our initial goals. Yeah, sure. And um, how might the Irish Times winning the Irish Times Innovation Awards, winning your category and indeed the overall awards, how might that help? Will it open a few doors here? Absolutely. And uh, like there's a few different things that I'm so grateful for. And one is to be kind of acknowledged uh, and have the disease acknowledged by such a big organisation. And to even see the words printed in a, in the Times there last week was just Phenomenal for patients to have it recognised and being discussed in such a big platform um, is huge because awareness of the disease is very poor and people are misdiagnosed. So that was that was the first thing that I was like, this is just so fantastic. Obviously, for the company and for the team to be recognised for their innovation um, is just fantastic as well. And it is a very simple product, but it's a very effective product and it's really helping people. And that's that's it's just lovely to be acknowledged for that. It also makes us or gives us so much credibility to know that the vetting process for this award was quite tough. You know, we had a, there was a few different steps in the in the process and, you know, to have to have been scrutinized to that extent and then to, to come out on top was just um, it's very reassuring for me and for my team and also for people who might be a little bit skeptical about our product to kind of reassure them that like this has been this people really serious people have looked at this and they they think it's great so you know it's just it's nice it's more social proof um and we've been contacted by a lot of people as well since winning the award to congratulate us and just to see if there's ways we can work together or you know it's it has opened a lot of doors and I've definitely made a lot of new connections already and it's it's only been a week. <laughs> well, that's great. And listen, congratulations again. We're delighted um, that you won the award. It clearly has been a life-changing uh, thing for you in terms of this new wound dressing in so many different ways. And Absolutely. we wish you continued success. Maybe you come back to us at some point in the future and let us know how you're getting on. Yeah, thank you so much. That's great. All right, Suzanne Maloney, thank you for joining Inside Business. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to James Benson, Omber Kennedy and Suzanne Maloney. Thanks also to our sponsor, Davy Group, for its continued support. Suzanne Brennan produced the show with JJ Vernon on sound. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care and stay safe. <laughs>